Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 254, Pumpkin Spice Podcast, recorded October 2nd, 2016, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only place on the internet where geeks rant. That's right. It doesn't happen anywhere else, only here. I am your host, sometimes known as Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week, I'm going to go ahead and say it, as always, are your two co-hosts, um... And I, I just went straight into the other name. I just, Chris, you will forever be in my heart, or at least in my patter. Um, Seth, the gooey kid Anderson, and Miles, the desert dwelling, so what was it? The coin master. That's what we were going to call you. The coin master. Wake right. Hey, guys. Hello, Mark and the Element OP faithful. We sure did miss y'all. Hey, guys. Yeah, it's raining here. Can you wow. That? that happens there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been raining all day. I've always said, uh, not always, I've only lived here a few years, but I've said that the weatherman in Atlanta is like the easiest job uh, because the Atlanta Atlanta metro area covers roughly the top half of the state. Um, And you can pretty much say it's going to rain somewhere in the Atlanta metro area and be right. Um, So it's, uh, I think it's great. We we get, uh, you know, I think what was a saw 17 inches of rain on average a year, which is actually higher than Seattle. Um, but you there in the desert, you get what? 0.17 inches of rain a year. Yeah. That's called a flash flood. Get a lot more than 17. Yeah. I don't know. I'd have to look at what it is. Uh, we're actually in a drought right now, uh, which by Texas standards is still flood condition, but it's considered a drought here. Oh, wow. We're expecting to get, um, aftershocks from the upcoming Los Angeles earthquake, which is supposed to be happening any day now. Any minute now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, I, my kids were off this week. That's why we didn't do a show last week. My kids were on vacation. And while I certainly could have done a show, um, it would have been the publication and editing of it. So the, re- the recording one on Sunday wouldn't have been a big deal. We were all here. Uh, but I was out and about a lot, um, during the week. We didn't take one big trip. Uh, two things blew that apart. One, we bought a house and therefore have no money. And two, we bought a house and therefore have spent all our time moving. Um, and we just didn't really have a chance to, to make any vacation plans. So we did a series of day trips, a staycation as it's commonly known and, uh, put about, I don't know, probably 3000 miles on my truck. Uh, my wife's car, I think I mentioned this previously a month ago, the weekend, the Friday before labor day, uh, labor day. That's the one. Yeah. Um, was in a car accident and her van has been in the shop ever since. It's been that long, um, and so we're still tooling around, and we got five people in my pickup truck. And you want to talk about family togetherness, drive six hours with five people in a pickup truck, and you will either be stronger as a family or hate each other. And I'm not really sure which one of those qualifies for us just yet. Just as long as one of the kids doesn't vomit, you know, you're fine. Uh, Well, you know, I always say uh, that it's not a cockerel family vacation until the little one throws up because she always gets sick on every vacation. But since this was a staycation, I guess we were exempt from that because she didn't. (laughs) Well, she's growing up. Good for her. So uh, you've probably heard me talk about it uh, last year. Uh, We went again up to Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, and I know uh, most people don't, when they think uh, vacation hotspots, they don't think Huntsville, Alabama. But if you're a space nerd uh, and you live uh, in this part of the country, Huntsville, Alabama is, you know, darn near paradise. They have the the U.S. Space and Rocket Center there. Um, and I, I don't think a lot of people outside of this area knew this. I didn't know this. 
But uh, in Huntsville, Alabama, at the Rocket Center, much of the Space Center technology was invented there. Uh, the Red Rock Arsenal, uh, the proving grounds there. And while uh, Houston and Cape Canaveral are where the you know all the action was, the stuff that they launched was pretty much created or built or or all of the above there in Alabama. And so uh, they have this huge uh, place there, and and they have two Saturn V rockets. You actually get to touch a Saturn V rocket. Where do you where do you get to say that? I touched a Saturn V rocket, uh, full on. One's uh, outdoors and one is, is indoors uh, in sort of an ex- uh, exploded display thing. Uh, there's a mock-up of the space shuttle. It's a trainer. Like uh, uh, when when you f- when you move the space shuttle from one place to another, you put it on the back of a jet, and you fly it. And so this is the same height and weight and dimensions of the shuttle, so that they can train pilots to fly this. So it's not actually a shuttle. It never went into space, but. You know, for a redneck from Texas, it's pretty darn close. I get to I get to touch a, a space shuttle, um, so it's really cool uh, there. And we we went and did that again. And I I went last time. I made my kids go. I, I ambushed them. Um, and I uh, went to uh, I didn't tell them where we were going. I just said we're going, and we went there. And they were all kind of like, eh. but this time actually it was my my middle child, my youngest child, rather's birthday. She turned eight on Thursday, and she requested to go to the rocket center. So, uh, geek parenting win right there. <laughs> That's cool. Brilliant. Very cool. <laughs> and also in Huntsville, Alabama, if you're ever there, uh, just outside of, wow. Hello. Thank you for making noise. Microsoft windows. Uh, um, also in, um, Huntsville, Alabama is a, uh, it's called a safari park. Really? It's a, it's a pasture with a bunch of exotic animals in it. And you get to drive around the pasture, um, literally around in circles. Most of you work at uh, places with parking lots bigger than this. Um, and and <laughs> there's zebras and ostriches and emus. And you go in with your you know, bucket of kibble and you stick it out the window if you dare. Um, and my truck came face to face with a buffalo, like, a, like an eight and a half foot at the shoulder ginormous beast who decided <laughs> to scratch his butt on my bumper. Um, and even though he's a relatively tame animal, he's still massive and he was shaking my 3,500 pound Dodge pickup truck. The whole thing was just shaking back and forth because he had an itch. It was a weird experience. Uh, so we brought back uh, snot and kibble as the, uh, um, souvenir from that trip. The back of my outside of my truck is literally covered in various animals, snot, um, but still Whoa. worthwhile. <laughs> Ah, memories. And ostriches are mean. Just going to say that. They they have yes, that they dinosaur are. brain, and they're aggressive, and they're the biggest thing around, and they know it. And, uh, yeah, they're mean. So that you was- emus chase you, right? Uh, the emus at this place were, were fairly tame. They they would come right up to the car and say, hey, we got food in there? I see food. That neck going. Um, <laughs> really? But they didn't- Oh, God. <laughs> they weren't- the the, the ostrich actually was pecking at my window like i had I, I saw him coming and rolled the window up because i had dealings with him last year he I, I actually last year we were in the minivan and i opened the sunroof and stuck the the little red solo cup they gave us full of food and he's a smart he's a smart dinosaur um he said well i can either peck the food out of this cup or i can bite the guy's thumb he'll drop the cup and then i have it all to myself so he went with option b 
Um, so having dealt with that same animal in the past, as soon as he came this time, I rolled the windows up and he was pecking tick, 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 on the glass saying, there's food in there. I know there is. Give it to me. Tick, 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 tick. So yeah, ostriches, rough animals. <laughs> <laughs> and a fun time was had by all. Rick is, uh, in the chat room is, is doing, uh, show titles. Apparently I had my dealings with him last year is, uh, <laughs> show title i must have just said that uh so that that's what i was uh doing uh this week what what did you guys do in in the week away miles anything interesting um actually i think it was probably during the time we were away um similar story but not in alabama i took my daughter and her boyfriend to a icbm missile silo just you know the thing you do right why not um why not um that is a museum in just south of tucson um in a place i think called green river and they have a complete um i guess it's a saturn five it must be um in the ground full nine stories down underground rocket with a pseudo nuclear warhead on it and you can go underground and go through the whole launch cycle of how to destroy planet earth it's uh, a lot of fun um you walk away quite depressed really um <laughs> you sort of feel like oh we came that close to total you know mutually assured destruction and uh and there it is right out there you can walk up there and, and like like your uh, story you can walk up and literally touch the rocket um and you can go on you know on on the surface level and they show the whole thing where it opens up it looks like a thunderbirds thing or something you know you can kind of look down and see this nine story deep rocket that is the same uh uh i guess whatever you call it the same launch uh machine that put the apollo mission on the moon uh just instead of putting a lunar lander on the top you put a nine megaton nuke and why not um yeah and why not you know is what you do but no it was interesting because it's it's a history lesson you go back to the Cold War, and you realize just how bad our um, uh, guidance systems were back then, that we could get a nuke roughly to Moscow, but you just had to put that level of d explosive power on that warhead in order to be able to do enough, you know, cover the, the fact that you might be, I don't know, 500 miles off your target. So, you know, just make sure you can destroy 2,000 miles across, you'll be fine. But um, it's interesting, you know, you get a chance to see the guy go through the whole launch facility and how the president has to call in these codes and all the, it's very complicated how they do it. But um, man, I'll tell you what, you walk away from that thinking, I learned something and I never want to see that ever again. Yeah, there in, in Huntsville, uh, of course, Werner von Braun uh, set up there and, and sort of uh, is the hero of that area. And um I, I was telling my my fourteen year old. I said the um, von Braun in the forties and uh, late thirties. All he wanted to do was make rockets to go to space, but he couldn't get anybody to pay for his research. So he decided to make rockets for the Nazis. That's a super simplified version to tell my daughter. Um, and uh, I said, now you know, years later, uh, all we're doing with his rocket technology is making rockets for the military because we've abandoned going to space so he uh he had that he did what he had to do to pursue a dream and then we've discarded that dream in favor of you know rockets that blow people up 
Merry Christmas. Yeah. Um, and you have here in the show notes that you got some new tech over the break as well, the Tableau. Now, that's something that I personally am interested in. So tell us a little bit about that. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Um, we got our uh, regular direct TV bill a couple of weeks ago, and it had gone up 60%. So, of course, I'm really enjoying seeing that. Um, so, you know, there's a time when you admire cord cutters, and there's a time when you become a cord cutter. So I had begun that journey. Um, I had decided that if I don't do this right, my wife will kill me, and you've got to be wife compatible with cord cutting. So it was most important that I experiment with this whole thing. So, you know, I've been trying to get feeds over the internet using, you know, Netflix and Sling and all the other various things, and they're kind of okay, but it just seems such a waste to have all this really good quality high def content out there in the air and uh, for lack of a putting an antenna on my roof i can't really see it so i we got a nice yagi antenna installed and pick up about 60 odd stations from the roof of our house um but then you sort of come to grips with the fact that i remember what it was like way back 20 years ago when i just had this sort of free-to-air television and you had to sit there and you weren't recording any TV and you got to watch the commercials and all that. And it's painful. And, you know, we're kind of spoiled, you know, with the fact that we've got a TiVo and I've hacked it to do the 30 second skip so I can watch shows that are pre-recorded. And when the ads come, because I press the button five times or whatever, and you don't see the ads. And we've just gotten used to that. We've had that now for 15 years. And, if you take that away, I mean, my life ain't worth living if I take that away. <laughs> so so I had to find something that was going to be at least that. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought, you know, I've, I've heard the term whole home DVR. And every time I'd heard that, it came from like Dish or DirecTV or some, you know, someone's trying to sell you something, right? So I then, I, I don't know, I was just. I don't know how I found this out on the internet, watching YouTube videos, something. Somebody told me about this company out of Canada called Nuvio, and they make this little black box thing that's, I don't know, the size of a, a smaller, well, a little bigger than, say, an Apple TV. And you plug a external hard drive in it. And it's got a coax plug, and you plug your antenna from your free-to-air television into the back of it. And it's got an Ethernet port, and you plug your network into the Ethernet port. I'm like, yeah, big deal. What is it? Well, what it is is really cool. It's this little server for the house that allows you to record up to four TV shows at the same time over the free-to-air TV and to store it on a local hard drive. And then what it does is it has all this client software that you can put on anything. You put it on your your Roku, your Nvidia Shield, your uh, tablets, your phone. Your there's a Plex plugin for it. Yeah, yeah, and there's Cody plugin for it. There's uh, you pretty much you can't you'd if you walk around you'll fall over a plugin for this thing. Um, and the the interface is just like a TiVo but easier, and it gives you a live stream of all of your tv shows you can see that just like you would get with a cable provider um you can see all of the individual shows that are being broadcast on the tv channels that you can get in for free uh in this beautiful spread and then you can pick that show and say look every time seinfeld comes on record it and just like on a tivo it's like a 
I think they call it a season pass. These guys just put it as a schedule. And uh, then you just forget about it. And in the background, this thing is just pulling all this content over free to air, putting it on the drive. And then wherever you are on any device, you can sit there and play it. And lo and behold, it's got 30 second skip for ads and it's got uh, all the ability for you to do the whole thing. Plus, here's the really cool thing some dude put a GitHub project out there that you can extract the content. So if you want to get content, I mean, should you be so inclined to do so? I'm not advocating piracy, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, if you want to get the content off this thing, you can pull it down and there you have an MP4 and you're good to go. Um, really easy, really simple and wife friendly. So 250 bucks later, um, I think I'm ready to cut the cord, but I haven't done it yet. I'm just still right on the edge of, you know, do I want to do this? So we decided 30-day trial. Let's do this 30 days in the house. Turn off DirecTV. We're not going to use it. We'll still pay for it, but we're not going to use it. 30 days, live with this thing, see how life is at the end of that. And I'm on, what, day four. So it's way too early to tell right now. So um, it's hard time, you know, getting my life to it, but we're getting there. Two fifty for the box. Is there a, a subscription service of any kind? Uh, there is to get the guide, but it's very cheap. It's like four dollars or five dollars a month, or you can pay um, for a lifetime on it for a hundred bucks or something like that. Okay, so let's if let's call that, that three fifty uh, for the lifetime, yeah. uh, plus a hard drive. So you got to buy your own hard drive. Call that a hundred. So four fifty right. for the for the total gear, uh, rig. Um, oh, plus the antenna. Right. Okay. So I went the uh, the more established route. Uh, I bought a TiVo Romeo uh, OTA over the air, uh, and mm-hmm. paid about the same price of that, about about four fifty. And then uh, there's an add-on for the 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 Romeo uh, for TiVo called the TiVo Stream, which basically gives you a web browser, uh, a web server in your home that uses one of your channels. So my my TiVo Romeo is four channels, um, same as yours. Uh, can you do live stuff with the Tableau? Or is it only recorded? No, it's live as well. Yeah, okay. So the Romeo, uh, by the time it was all said and done, I bought the lifetime subscription and the one terabyte device and the stream. I paid right at six hundred. So the the Tableau looks like maybe a hundred dollars cheaper uh, for for the whole thing. Um, what I what I don't have with my TiVo, and I wish I did, and I understand why, is I don't have. Um, like a Roku app. I don't have an Android TV app. Uh, those are not options. And the reason is TiVo sells little boxes called the TiVo Mini for $150. And why would they give you an app so that you can plug into your $89 Roku when they could sell you a $150 box? Uh, so I bought one TiVo Mini on eBay for uh, b- b- used for 70 bucks. I've got searches out for another one. Anybody out there got a Mini you're not using? Let me know. Um, uh, so I, my goal is to to go used on this uh, thing and and try to get in for uh, about you know five or six hundred. Uh, well, I'm already at six hundred. Call it eight hundred lifetime uh, for over the air stuff. Um, so Tableau looks like it's probably comparable because you got to have a Roku and you got to have those other apps too. So you know, call that. Uh, so it looks like the Tableau is a little less expensive, uh, but but not terribly so. It'll be interesting to have a little little showdown. And and see how those two go mm-hmm. over time. The the thing one thing I liked about the Romeo uh, about the TiVo is it the the box has um, YouTube and uh, Hulu and Google uh, Plus and uh, Netflix and Amazon uh, clients all built in. 
So they have what's called a one pass. And so I put in The Flash because my kid loves that show on CW. And it knows all episodes of The Flash on all services that I pay for. And it all just shows up on the TiVo. So if I want to watch Flash Season 1, Episode 3, which is on, on Netflix, it's all right there. I just click it and, it and it loads the TiVo app and goes for me. So that was a, a neat little enhancement that you get from a company that's been doing this for you know a decade. That That would be cool. I mean, I would really... That would be the missing thing I don't have on the Tableau is the ability to pull in content from sources other than the free-to-air. Um, I was reading their forums. People have asked for that sort of thing. Maybe if you have like a Sling subscription and you wanted to pick up some of those cable uh, channel stuff and bring that in, it would be really nice if it was all in one interface and there was a one-stop shopping experience to watch it. Um, but no, you don't get that yet. I mean, they've talked about it. Maybe they can pull a deal together for it i know tivo's got that i think there's a there's another device oh i can't think of the name of it there is another device that also has one of those that works with both free over the air and sling to pretty much replace what you would normally get on a cable subscription but uh, unfortunately tableau doesn't um one thing really unusual i got the tableau in the box i opened the box i'm thinking oh where is this thing made like china uh-uh made in canada nice the thing's actually made in Canada. Go figure. <laughs> I, it's it's not quite the golden age for cord cutters, but it's getting really close. It really is. Um, I, I've mentioned it before. I have the PlayStation View service, PS View, um, and between that and the over-the-air stuff, now, like, for example, my PS View has um, uh, currently in the Atlanta market, it only has, NBC, uh, it has Fox. Uh, and they just, I think, signed a deal with CBS. So local stuff is coming to that, which it'll be interesting. When that happens, will the $600 I spent to get over-the-air TV look like a stupid investment? Um, we'll, we'll just have to see how that goes. Uh, the 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 PS View uh, has a DVR service that is it's passable. It's okay. Uh, it stores stuff in the cloud up to uh, four episodes you know, uh, my, uh, the neat thing about over the air stuff, you know, I'm sure you saw the same thing. You stick a digital antenna up and you start seeing that your local NBC affiliate, uh, call it, you know, channel five has five dash one, five dash two, five dash three. And it's got all sorts of stuff there. So my kids have fallen in love with these old 70s shows like emergency. Remember that one? Um, oh, yeah. oh man, that we currently cool. have like 37 episodes of emergency recorded on our TiVo. Uh, and they watch it every morning before school. They get up and watch an episode of Emergency. It's a thing that they love. And uh, it's so great because they don't get any of it. They don't understand a world before cell phones. You know, they don't understand it, but they they like it. And it's uh, the old, the stuff that's cheesy and, and uh, 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 you know, tropish to us is new to them. So it's kind of cool. Uh, but that's that's the, you know, I got, I didn't get as many channels as you did. I just stuck a, a little Mohu Leaf 18 inch uh, flat thing up in the attic i didn't go yagi on the roof uh, but i got 40 plus channels uh and you know if you live in a metropolitan area you can totally get a, get away with that yeah if yes yeah seth i i would be i don't know what you would get i mean you'd probably get you'd probably get 15 or 20 channels i bet you would i i don't know it you know if i were to like climb the pole that my um antenna for the wi-fi i have and put it up there where it gets up above the tree line I might do a lot better than just like sticking it at the top of my house yeah. so but you know i'm i'm not gonna climb that pole <laughs> and uh 
<laughs> so uh, I don't know what I would do. But I, I tell you one thing though: when you put a put something on your roof, right, and you're willing to put a pole up and attach an antenna to it, and you're up there looking around, the whole world looks different. Like the first thing I thought was, "Hey, wouldn't it be really cool?" If I could put some massive Wi-Fi antenna that could pick Wi-Fi up from the Starbucks that's like three miles away. Because then if there was ever a problem here, I could always, you know, borrow theirs. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, I went through that exercise too. As I thought, if I'm going up on the roof and I'm going to put something on a pole, why, why not put two things on the pole? Well, I didn't do it. <laughs> but what, what I discovered was that the, um, the yachting industry and the, the boating industry um, have a very similar problem. You know, these boats, they come into harbour somewhere and they, they may not dock at a marina. They may be docked, out, you know, offshore a little bit, but they still want to get their Wi-Fi. So some companies are out there selling seven-mile range Wi-Fi antennas for these boats. I think the, the one that I saw was called Red Box or Red Book or Red something. Anyway, um, but they're expensive, you know, they're like 400 bucks for this antenna. But man, I was so tempted to put that thing up. I thought, <laughs> you know, if you're going to do it, you know, go big or, you know, go home, you know. Uh, you know, I've, I've never experimented with that. I don't know how well it works. I know that the biggest challenge with that is not the receive, but the send. Because you've got to send that other uh, antenna that isn't a big broadcast antenna. You've got to be able to get through to their, you know, router in the in the Starbucks uh, with enough signal that it thinks you're a local client and and can speak in real time, because um, <laughs> I, I looked at doing that um, at the school where I worked. My philosophy was this was all publicly funded stuff. You know the 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 students and the parents there paid for all of that equipment. Why why shouldn't they get the use of it? So I was gonna. We already had an antenna. We brought our our uh, connection in uh, over a microwave. So we had. 100 i think it was 75 foot tower uh up and i was i thought the same thing let me stick some some just wi-fi antennas up there and just let the neighborhood go crazy with it and yeah i hear you talking craig Craig, that would be terrible security what these same kids were on my network all day every day anyway um you know <laughs> big deal uh and and plus you know we were paying for this bandwidth that we weren't using after 4 p.m every day and we weren't using it all in the summer so, so I started looking into that, and the problem was not the, the – it was the, the transmit and receive. Like, I could stick something up that would just broadcast, you know, nuclear uh, quality uh, range, but getting their little laptop card to talk back to my thing was the, tr- the trouble. So the yeah, things so in the tempting. boat, they're probably a-, a service provider who's got the same thing on the other end. Yeah. I don't know. I'm – I feel like I want to create my own little, you know, bunker here in the middle of the <laughs> suburbs. <laughs> well, I have an antenna from whenever I switched wireless companies. We had bought the old one, and I'm just leasing this one. But I have the old one. It's just sitting in my house. Uh, I don't. I don't use it for anything anymore. Yeah. What sort of range does it get? Um, it pointed to a tower that was. If you were going to go as the crow flies. At least five miles away, I would say. It's tempting. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I need to. I need to calm down and just enjoy my free television for a while. <laughs> it's not free, people. You pay for that by watching ads. Um, interesting. You talked yeah. about the tableau. Uh, so TiVo, because they're a major player, 
um, they had to basically go beg permission to skip commercials because people could sue them. Tableau being a can- Canadian-based company and, and under the radar, probably not an issue for them yet. But on the TiVo, there are rules as to when you can skip. Like you can't skip something uh, on prime time unless it's at least 24 hours old. Um, and and then there's a there you push the the skip commercial button and it just skips all of them, not just 30 seconds. It goes over uh, totally. Now live stuff you can skip forward and backward uh, 30 seconds, but the total commercial skip the the content provider like NBC Universal decides when and under what circumstances you can skip commercials. And I thought that was an interesting. Uh, you know, kowtow they had to do. Wow, I feel really bad now. I've been hacking TiVo since 2000. <laughs> <laughs> We've always had 30-second skip. Yeah. Well, the 30-second um, skip yeah. is still there. It's just not the full, complete jump-over commercial skip. Um, uh, and uh, interesting, on the PS View, different content providers decide whether you can skip or pause. Like, uh one of the home and garden or one of those things that my wife likes to watch, you can pause for five minutes and that's it. Like five minutes during a show one time. So you pause for five minutes uh, to go to the bathroom and then like you skip over the commercials uh, to, and you get caught up, caught up to live. You can't pause again. You've, you've used your one pause. Um, and so they get to set the rules. I think that's interesting. And in a tech, in a, in an internet world, you can do that. Hmm. So you get you get one bathroom break uh, per one hour show, um, something like that. Oh man, Fidel so, Castro would be proud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Seth, wow. you have been uh, using your time wisely to view uh, media. <laughs> I. <laughs> well, um, yes, I did um well a couple of things i bought a fitbit just because you know all the cool kids at church had one and i wanted to join in and so i did a weekly challenge and my goal like i decided i wanted to win that weekly challenge and so i had over a hundred thousand steps by friday and friday um i bought like this mattress pad because mine was like 15 years old and i went to get up friday and i didn't know this was like a smart pad with ai i went to wake up and get out of bed and go walk and it said why don't you just lay here some more and i thought you know, that's a really good idea and i remember wait a minute today's september the 30th that means luke cage is out on netflix so i started episode one i paused it like episode four and went and walked for like an hour and then i came back and watched episodes five through 13 i binged luke cage in <laughs> Basically, the third. It might have taken me a total of fourteen hours to watch. So but, the Netflix um, outage didn't hit you. I was over and okay. done with, I guess, because I watched it. I was done Friday night in time to watch something else on Netflix. So um, I spent all day watching Luke Cage, and I mean, it was it was really good. Um, I, I don't know why Agent of Shield sucks so oh. much because Marvel rocks the netflix series i think it's you know that first season of daredevil is the gold standard they haven't quite hit but it is still good quality stuff um go watch it i think you know you can tell 
it, you know, the first season of, of Daredevil to me could just stand alone has a story, but uh, Jessica Jones and even Luke Cage, you can tell they're setting stuff up for Defenders, the Defenders yeah. series they're, they're doing because, um, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but it, it's just, oh, that's set up and you have to watch because Stan Lee shows up sort of, and it's really cool how he does. And if you're a fan of the seventies, power man uh luke cage uh or there's this one scene where it shows him walking in looking like you know he has the tiara the the wild pants and the yellow shirt and uh you know it was just you could tell that little scene was put in there just for the fans and it it was great um so those two things you got to look for stan lee and then the scene where he looks like power man is supposed to look um you know and and you realize you know like the way Marvel or did with the first X-Men, you know, what were you expecting? Yellow spandex or whatever. Things that look good in comics don't translate well to the big screen. And seeing him, it was like, oh, there he is. But you're like, I wouldn't want to be watching that for 13 hours. So, <laughs> uh, but it was, it was a, it was a good series. Um, like I say, Daredevil season one stands alone, but you can rank Daredevil two, Jessica Jones, and Luke Cage all at that same level. Below okay, it. so um, on my scale, Daredevil season one is a perfect ten for for right. uh, superhero television. Uh, Daredevil season two, uh, eight. Uh, Jessica Jones, six and a half to seven. So based on that scale, where does uh, Luke Cage fit in? Um. I see. I I liked the story better for Jessica Jones, but it was just that was just, you know, like some people like science fiction, some people like fantasy, but as far as I think it was really well done. I, I, I to me they're comparable. Okay. It's just um So Luke Cage would, and know, Jessica and, Jones are comparable. But season I, I 1 so. and 2 of Daredevil beats both of those. You know, I, I, if I were ranking them, I would go, you know, obviously Daredevil one, and then I would put Daredevil two at two A, and then Luke Cage and Jessica Jones would tie for two B. I, I don't think there's enough difference okay. to knock them down to three. Um, if you understand gotcha. what I'm trying to say. And one of the things I think was really cool how they told the story, you know, obviously Luke Cage is black and it takes place in Harlem. So it's all about black people and, you know, African-American. And they told a story that is very socially relevant today in a non heavy handed way. It was just like, this is really awesome the way they did it. So that actually says something that really does. Um, but, you know, I don't really know that it was set out because obviously they've been doing this, you know, filming it and stuff for months. So I don't think the the situation whenever they started this, the racial tensions were as high as they are today. So but it came out and because it was so well done and, and the way they tackle, you know, black people versus the police and, and you know, jumping to conclusions and media um angles that are exploited for whatever purposes behind the scenes 
I think is, you know, it's a really neat story and it's very, very relevant for today. Miles, have you seen any of the Netflix uh, uh, Marvel stuff? I saw the, uh, I just started watching Daredevil. I think I got about halfway through the first episode and then got called away, but I wanted to get back to it. I just haven't yet. All right. You you are forbidden from being on the show again until you've seen I know, I know. Daredevil. I feel bad even saying that. I know the history <laughs> on this show. I know. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. I'll um, do it. I'll watch it. I promise. Uh, I haven't seen any Luke Cage yet because I've been out with my kids, and uh, I'm going on the assumption that it's not even remotely kid-friendly. Yeah. Definitely yeah. not. There's there's <laughs> death and violence in it aplenty. Yeah. So, But, you know, again, I make the distinction that the stuff is in there. It isn't gratuitous blood and gore and violence. It's integral to the story. It's a gritty story. And, you know, in the same way we talked about how Daredevil, that violence was very much in the context of the story and it didn't take away from the story, but the story would have been much less had they toned down the violence to go more kid friendly. Um, I, I look at this the same way. Yeah, I, uh, I had to uh, end a friendship recently from uh, somebody who said they didn't like Princess Bride and uh, it was really, it was a sad moment, uh, but you know, I, I take my media seriously, people. Um, how could how could somebody not like that? Uh, you know, it's it baffles me. It is just beyond my understanding. Uh, but apparently, this person um, just had no taste. Um, <laughs> Obviously, or bad taste. I mean, one of the two. So I get worried um, in general when somebody takes something I love and remakes it. Uh, and there are two of those things that are happening right now on uh, television. One apparently this is the television show. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about. And okay, we're just going to go with that. Uh, one is Lethal Weapon, and the other is uh, MacGyver. And uh, each of them have had two episodes. And so far, MacGyver doesn't suck. Uh, Lethal Weapon, I'm actually enjoying. You guys seen either of those? No. I have not. Yeah, no. doesn't suck is is the best I can say for MacGyver. Uh, but when my wife was saying, you know, I, I don't really like it. I said, well, let's go back and watch some of the first series, uh, first season of, of the original Richard Dean and Anderson MacGyver. It wasn't great either. Uh, so I'm willing to give these people a chance. And both of these is a, t- it's a reimagining. It's not um, a retelling. And so I'm willing to cut a lot of slack because you're, you know, you're telling a different story and doing it a different way. The new MacGyver is younger, uh, has a whole, totally different uh, background. Um, he's not that humble, quiet, confident. He's a snarky millennial. Um, you know, and that makes me dislike him, but, uh, I understand why they, you know, went for that demographic. The, uh, the, uh, lethal weapon, again, it's a reimagining of the same story with Damon Wayans and some guy I don't know. Um, and the, some guy I don't know, I kind of liked him better than Mel Gibson, uh, playing this, you know, burned out, uh, ex vet, uh, you know, I've been through tragedy and, and not only do I not care if I die, I kind of want to, uh, thing. Um, so it's, uh, just something, uh, worth checking out. Also, I've, uh, watched two episodes of, uh, uh, designated survivor with Kiefer Sutherland. And frankly, I'll watch anything with Kiefer, Su- Kiefer Sutherland in it. I'll give him three episodes just because it's him. Um, right. and I'm enjoying it. It's not great. Uh, the, the CGI of the, uh, I mean, the, the, no spoilers here. The whole story is about the fact that the co- capital is blown up during the state of the union and there's one guy, the designated survivor, which is a real thing. Um, who was the, uh, secretary of housing and urban development who had actually just been fired that morning. 
um, is now the president. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, but the CGI of the burned out Capitol is kind of ridiculous every time they show it and they keep showing it. And I don't know why. I mean, let it, let it leave us to leave it to the imagination instead of showing your cheesy, um, video toaster Babylon five graphics. But other than that, the, uh, you know, it's a political intrigue kind of thing. And, uh, you know, there's the, this story, this guy who, you know, he was a director of housing and urban development. And now, you know, his kids can't be in school anymore. And he's, you know, he's got to live. I mean, he, he wakes up in the white house and has to ask one of his bodyguards directions to his office. Cause he doesn't know, you know, never been there. So it's interesting little touches like that, that I'm enjoying Rick in the chat room likes it as well. So there's a, there's my TV, um, reviews so far. I have uh, watched, started watching Pitch. It's uh, it's on Fox, whatever your Fox affiliate is. It's uh, obviously a fictional show about a woman who gets called up to the big leagues, uh, and she's a pitcher. And I have found it very emotionally engaging and well done. And there's only been two episodes so far, but it has me hooked. I mean, I'm, I, it's getting good, strong, emotional gut level reactions from me. Uh, and I was just like, wow, I was, uh, I'm very impressed because it's just regular network television. You know, it's not Netflix or anything special cable or anything. It's just regular ne- uh, network TV and I watched the first one just because I wanted, but it it, it got me hooked, yeah. and so. And I really think Netflix and Amazon Prime are forcing the networks to up their game, uh, because yep. for so long there was HBO putting out really high quality content, but it was just HBO, and and you could combat combat that. But now it's HBO and Netflix and Amazon Prime, and you know uh, Showtime has got a couple of things out there that people seem to like, uh, and there's no reason to just sit in front of the TV and watch NBC anymore. So they're having to really right. kick it up a notch, and they're trying some creative things like a reimagining of two shows that people really liked, people our age, right? You can tell the demographics. They're going for the, the 40-somethings uh, there on all of them, which is interesting because you know they used to target the 30-somethings and the 20-somethings. Now they, don't, they, they can't anymore. Those guys are gone. So... Um, well, no, it's, it's they want to... Because it's like, you know, if you look at the 70s show... Kids loved it because it was about teenagers, but the adults loved it because it was about their childhood as well. So something like the 70s show was perfect because it targeted two separate demographics at the same time. So in much the same way, you get MacGyver targeting the people our age and then the people our age children like the millennial snarky guy. Right. So, you know, so that way in some ways it's great marketing because they're targeting multiple demographics uh, with, with one show. So in that sense, it's genius level. Yeah. Do you yeah. want a tip on a really good show that's going to be, it's a little harder to find. But there's a second series of this thing just started. But I wanted to let you know, let you in on this one, right? It's from the UK. It's a series called Hunted. Have you ever heard of it? No. No? Okay. So here's the premise. These people, it's a reality show, but it was, it's unlike a lot of UK reality shows which ended up making their way here. You know, like, um, uh, what is it? Like, Pop Idol or American Idol, Big Brother, that sort of thing, yeah. This one probably will never make its way here because the Fourth Amendment would stop it. Here's the (laughs) principle. (laughs) Um, In the UK, they're known to have the largest number of CCTV cameras and surveillance 
anywhere. I mean, the city of London has got that reputation, right? So what happens right. is that they put this TV show together and they open it up to the public and they say, if you want to volunteer to be on this show, you can, but here's what you got to do. We're going to make you a most wanted criminal and you've got to survive on the run for 30 days. If you survive on the run, we'll give you 10,000 pounds. And so everybody says, sure, I'll do it. But here's what you're up against. We've got everybody, the top guys from Scotland Yard, all the guys who run the CCTV cameras, all the guys who can triangulate your cell phones, and they're allowed to use anything from intimidation to your family, your friends, the media to advertise your face on the you know most wanted list everything but you've still got to be able to survive somewhere on the run for 30 days within the united kingdom and if you can do it and at the end of it is uh, you've got to get to an airport and get on a private plane that would simulate flying you out of the country uh, by a certain date and time if you can pull that off you win so they have i don't know about a dozen different contestants that try this out and each episode is the journey of one of the contestants until they get caught and they always get caught of course but it's the most you, you watch this thing from the contestants point of view and it's almost like they've got a film crew with them but you know they couldn't because they'd be found like everybody would be telling the cops where they are or you know whatever right. but you feel so big brother. Like, it's 1984, people. Like, you're looking around and everybody's watching you and they're watching the car you're in and triangulating your cell phone and picking up all these things. And you're there with these people and they always get caught. And you sort of look at the whole thing and go, oh, we're doomed. But it's just the most amazing social experiment I've ever seen but it's a great reality TV show. So I'm sure law enforcement one, loves the message that it sends, and it is you can't oh, yeah. get away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're just they're flexing their muscle, you know. Uh, but in the end, somebody does. So I'm not going to give it away. But the thing is, you've got to go. You go through this whole experience with them. Um, it's just an amazing experience. It's only six episodes in a series, and they did series one. They're now doing series two. You're going to have to hunt it down. Uh, you know, it's going to be one of those BitTorrent hunt things. But um, it's out there, and I recommend it. It's really worth watching. There was something similar on American television a couple of years ago. I can't remember what it was called, but they uh, 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 it was always a couple, a man and a woman, uh, and they didn't have to be married, but it was always a man and a woman, were given a duffel bag with a million dollars in it. Real money. Uh, well, it represented real money. I, I doubt it was real money, but uh, uh, it was, and they were given 24 hours to stash the the money, come up with a good story, come up with an alibi, talk to your friends, do whatever you got to do, and then turn yourself in to the police. And from the moment you turn yourself in, the police have 48 hours to find the duffel bag full of money. And if the police fail, you get the million dollars. Um, but they can use whatever legal interrogation interrogation tactics that they really use, uh, you know, sleep deprivation, all that sort of stuff. They could go strong on your family. Um, uh, they, they, you know, and it was so fascinating to watch these guys work because, you know, they, it was always a, a, a two person, uh, interrogation team and a two person investigation team and they were working together. So it was four cops. Um, and they, you know, they break the, the man and the woman apart and then they'd play the psychology games. And, uh, and it was, it was so fascinating because again, they always got caught they never got away with it. Um, and in the end, the, every episode I watched, I didn't watch all of them. It was the interrogators that they did the job every time. The investigators never found it 
before the interrogators made him crack. And so what happened as the show went on, it became a competition between the two branches of law enforcement too. And so the investigators are getting mad at each other because, you know, we're not doing this fast enough. The interrogators are going to get uh, get it to us. And so you ended up with the interrogators, actually, uh, the investigators calling back false leads to the interrogators to try to slow them down because they wanted to save their own uh, reputation. And it was it was so many meta levels going on. It was like a summer replacement. It only ran uh, four or five or six uh, episodes. And it was just really great because it was uh, a multi-level mind game. And the police loved the message because it was, you always get caught. You never win. That's yeah. cool. It, it's funny. You, you're right. The majority of the time that the uh, person gets caught, it's because of psychological intimidation. It's like they've been so distanced from their family for so long that they just have to pick up a phone and call their family and talk to their kid or something like that, and they get them there. Right. Or they, they just they always can get them on a psychological ploy. And what was crazy um, was, was 48 is, hours, right? And these people are always, I can put up with anything for 48 hours. Put me in an ice bath. I can do anything for 48 hours. You know, 23 hours in, they're begging for mommy and saying, I'll tell you anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're uh, worthless and weak people. <laughs> and these people, that's all they do, you know, for a living. They break people. Don't mess with them. Right. <laughs> Uh, oh, one other thing that I wanted to mention before we went on. It's Pinktober. Uh, if you like boobs or you have a pair of boobs, uh, um, take care of them. Um, if, uh, if you or somebody you love has boobs, uh, go get them squished. Um, because early detection is a, is a real thing. <laughs> I'm just saying. My, my wife's mother uh, uh, died from breast cancer. My wife's sister um, had a mastectomy from breast cancer. Um, and my wife's uh, aunt um, had a mastectomy so she goes every year uh in october doesn't matter actually the end of september she always goes uh and gets a mammogram and fortunately it's always been negative but the idea is to get it early because uh breast cancer is one of those things that if you catch it early it's like 199 percent um um treatment successfully treated cure is not really the right word uh if you get it early you can do a lumpectomy and you don't have to lose your boob um, if you don't get it early, you end up losing both, both boobs and going through chemo and all of that. So do it early. And, uh, you know, I know our show, uh, audience is overwhelmingly, uh, male, but males like boobs too. So the, the, tell the owner of your favorite pair of boobs to, uh, go get them checked. <laughs> well said. That's a great public service announcement <laughs> Thanks. right there. <laughs> Um, and now let's oh hear my. from a couple of our listeners. Uh, Mark asks a question, uh, not me, um, asks a question about headphones. He says, Mark, I'm so I'm a little surprised you guys didn't talk more about your own favorite headphones. My favorite headphones are the Koss KSC7 headphones. They're light ear clip style headphones that I can wear all day without any discomfort. The best two things about them are one, they have a great sound quality, frequently response from 15 uh, to 25,000 hertz compared with most headphones frequent response from 20 to 20,000. Uh, they're in inexpensive. Right now, I can order them out on Amazon for a mere $14. One feature that uh, not everyone will love is that they're open headphones. That is, I can clearly hear the music or podcast I have playing, but I can also hear everything that is going on around me. So while they're great for working at home in an environment I can control, they're not as good on an airplane. Just throwing in my two cents. Um, so, uh, Miles? You're kind of a gear guy. What are your favorite headphones? 
Uh, I have lots of different headphones for different purposes. I don't use one for everything. So uh, let's see. Okay, I've got a Sennheiser PXE7, I think they're called, which are very lightweight headphones I use at the gym. They're really good for running. Um, they sit on your head. They don't uh, take much. Um, they don't, you know, they don't fall off under a lot of duress. Uh, and they're a good sounding headphone. Uh, they're not cheap, but they're designed specifically for workouts and so on. Um, if I'm sitting in a coffee shop working, working, I'll use, uh, what am I using at the moment? I think I've got a, another set of Sennheisers that I use for that, but they're noise block out uh, headphones because I don't, you know, I try to block out the ambient noise and you know, I sort of wonder why the heck am I going to a coffee shop if I want to block out the ambient noise, but <laughs> stay at home. Know, Go figure. Stay at home, right? Yeah, just change of scenery or something. Um, and I will use the same thing on it on uh, aeroplane. Although I did get some. I'm trying to think what they are. They're like from Monoprice, some cheap in ear uh, earbud style headphones that are really good for amplification and signal quality. And they were surprisingly cheap. They were about fifteen dollars. And uh, I can't tell you the name of them. I, I know I Google searched looking for a, an easy set of headphones that would work with a cell phone. I use those periodically. Um, when I'm working on anything on a pro audio kind of stuff, I'm using my Sony studio headphones, which I've had since 1991. Um, yeah, so that's kind of me. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think? All right, so uh, I have three sets of headphones that I use on a regular basis. The ones that I'm using right now to podcast on are Sony MDR XD100 headphones, and the redeeming quality about these is they were 19 bucks. Um, they're comfortable, and they were inexpensive, and they're a, re a reasonably good uh, uh, frequency response. I don't, and I, I've never put these particular headphones on a on a tone generator, but my 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 voice sounds good in my head. And, uh, but the, the big thing is they're comfortable because I, I can wear these for five or six hours at a time doing uh, podcasts. Uh, and they were, you know, inexpensive. And I, well, again, my first show was called the Tightwad Tech. Um, I pretty much only use these for podcasting. They're a little heavy in the bass response. So I don't use them for mixing down the podcast um, because the, it's not a true response. Um, over, over the time, I've kind of I, I have developed a sound for this show. And I don't need to listen to every show. I know the I know the the numbers on the settings, and and I can I can create that sound uh, pretty much consistently. Uh, but uh, prior to that, I used uh, uh, just a, a range of headphones because I know that my listeners listen to a range of things, including you know the tinny mono speaker on your phone. And I, I ran through things through a, 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 a different things and found something that I liked that I, I fit that fit well. My noise canceling headphones that I mentioned, I think, is what brought brought up this uh, question. I bought as uh, AMZ Review Trader. I know I've talked about them before. Um, it's a website you can go to amzreviewtrader.com, and you get free and/or uh, heavily discounted stuff uh, in exchange for an Amazon review. Um, so uh, these came from AMZ Review Trader. They're called Bohm B O with an umlaut H M uh, Bluetooth noise canceling headphones. Um, their regular price is 160. Nobody pays 160. Uh, the sale price, which is the everyday price is $85. Uh, I paid significantly less than that. However, I feel they're worthwhile at $85 at $85. They are bargain basement noise canceling headphones, uh, compared to a Bose or something that is going to run 200 to 300. Um, 
they're really fine for bargain basement headphones. And I, I, I did put these on a tone generator and I it was able to muscle out tones as low as uh, three ohms. Uh, I mean, three hertz. And uh, it was able to uh, go as high as my 45-year-old ears could hear. Um, I mean, the, the, the tone generator, uh, I can hear uh, tones as at about 27, 28,000 uh, hertz, um, which is actually pretty good for an old guy. Uh, but I don't know what the actual frequency response of the headphones are because that, that I topped out there. Um, they have a really good, uh, not, not great, but really good noise canceling. Um, it, it works well for uh, low-end frequencies, great for airplanes. Um, uh, pretty good for office, uh, you know, chatter. And I wear them, you know, when I need to be in the zone at work uh, or when I travel. Um, like in traffic, it's not going to block out sirens and things like that because it, it needs something that's going to be uh, a constant. That's the way. It, maybe you don't know how active noise canceling works. So let me tell you. There's microphones on either sides of the headphones and all all uh, phones, everything has that now. And it listens to the, out, uh, uh, the ambient sound around it and produces the inverse wave of that, thus canceling out noise canceling. And then fills in the gaps with whatever you got. So since the noise canceling for these are sort of uh, based around low end sound, when you turn the noise canceling on, the headphones themselves sound a little thin, a little low end thin. But when you turn it off, really high quality, uh, nice rich bass, good quality. So, uh, you know, at $85, they're not a bargain, but it's not... Um, it's not a ripoff either. So com slash Amazon, B-O-H-M, um, and you can find those. And then my everyday wear um, is, uh, and, and I've mentioned these too, the Freedom, uh, uh, Jaybird Freedom Wireless Earbuds. Uh, they're a good quality uh, designed for athletic use uh, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a beast at uh, CrossFit. Uh, no. Um, really, I just needed something that would stick in my ear. I, I, if, you, if you can wear like Apple earbuds, uh, 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 earbuds great for you. I can't. They just don't stick in my ear. Um, these have the little rubber wings that stick in the inner uh, curve of your ear and and fit in there um, uh, really comfortably. Uh, you can get different sizes of of different things. It comes with like six different options, so you so you're going to find a fit. Good frequency frequency response. Uh, really good quality. They stay in place. Uh, you know, you shove them in there and it becomes passive noise canceling and, and, and then basically you have earplugs in. Um, and uh, the Bluetooth range is, you know, standard 25 feet or so. Um, and they have handled, you know, the abuse I've I've given them. Uh, not, you know, I haven't gone swimming with them or anything like that, although they're supposed to be water resistant. So those are my uh, three go-to headphones. The Jaybirds I wear literally every day. Um, I have one ear and one in my left ear and the right ear is dangling at my, uh, collar so that I can hear what's going on around me. And I listen to podcasts all day long. And then when I need music, I, I can put those in. And when I really want to concentrate, I go to the boom for noise canceling. So those are my headphones. Um, Seth, uh, I know you have cheap, cheap and cheaper, right? Yeah. I, uh, my favorite pair of headphones that I ever had, um, they had the over the ear hooks because I have these massive wings and uh, stuff tends to fall out often. Um, somehow I've lost those. I had a pair of noise canceling headphones that they were again on the, the cheap side and they, my problem is my huge head. I went to, you know, how you have to kind of pull them apart to put them on. Well, I pulled them apart and split them like a wishbone. <laughs> and so, um, 
you know, I was like, oh crap, I loved these. So, you know, I just, I don't really care because I'm not an audio snob. I, I listen to music or podcast or anything else just with whatever cheap pair of headphones I happen to have. And uh, from the chat room, uh, we have a couple of suggestions. Uh, Mono Price 109927 in-ear enhanced bass hi-fi noise isolating that's, earphones. That's uh, the ones. That's what I bought. They're, I think that's what I bought. They're 10 bucks at Element Open. Yeah, that's it. Amazon. Yeah. Uh, and uh, for studio use, the Tascam TH300X, 50 bucks. Um, so th- there's there's a couple of suggestions. Um and what was it? Mark says he likes his cost case. I used to have, in fact, I, I have a set of costs downstairs in the, in the, uh, drawer next to the couch when I need to listen to something and the kids are doing their thing. And I've had them gosh, since like 97. Uh, and they're just, they're, you know, they're rockstar headphones. They're not the, I think I paid maybe 40 or $50 for them back in the day. They're not super high end and I can't even think of the name of them, but, uh, I, I'm a fan of over the ear. Instead of on ear, these are on ear, and I find that a little uncomfortable. The the cost ones that I'm talking about, um, I, but I prefer over the ear to in ear or on ear. Um, but for noise canceling, over the ear is the best way to go, in my opinion. So there you go. Nobody's ever asked that, Mark. Nobody's ever asked. Uh, they've asked about microphones. They've asked about all sorts of stuff. But I can't recall anybody's ever written in and asked about headphones. So thanks for letting us geek out a little bit. Uh, and Tim offers some advice for how to spend our spare time. He says, I know Mark will be working on his AI-enhanced garage door, but here's a project that perhaps Seth might like to explore and re- relive some fond memories of his youth. It's called the Retro Pi, and it's a, and it's an astonishingly simple way to turn a Raspberry Pi into an arcade machine from back in the day. It's cheap and easy to get started, and depending on how much time and money one is willing to commit, the possibilities are virtually endless. People have been DIYing home arcade for years, but this project brings the cost of entry down to nothing. Um, I'm sure Seth, the geek that he is, must have a Raspberry Pi or two kicking around amongst the 30 or so Android tablets he's got in his closet. Oh, and don't worry, it has a GUI. Anyways, love the show. Keep it up, Tim. Yeah, um, I wonder how legally it makes the arcade. Is it one of those where you have to get the ROMs that you have backup copies of or whatever? Um, You know, because I unfortunately don't. But um, I don't know. I I would like to have some type of thing like that. But honestly, I would hate to have some other thing like that because some days it's just hard for me to get out of the house anyway. You know, I have Netflix and Amazon Prime and Dish and books. <laughs> and, you know, really, I only need any one of those is enough to keep me entertained for days on end. So one more thing might not be a good thing. Yeah. I, oh, I it's have- a good thing, Seth. Really, it is. <laughs> when you get into mime playing... It's really addictive. <laughs> Tim's on the money on this one. That's Definitely that's one of the things it. that I've I've you know it's on my list. I want to build a full on cabinet, and now that you can buy you know a twenty inch monitor for a cup of coffee and and, and a smile, um, you know you build the wooden cabinet and and a joystick. So that's that's something I've been wanting to do. I haven't gotten that far yet. My wife, who is in earshot, just snickered when I said that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's something I'd want to do, but I, for the children, but I haven't. Miles, you have pretty much uh, a museum of computers, uh, behind you. Have you, have you built your own arcade yet? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, I didn't do the whole stand up thing because it's real estate's, uh, problem for me. I don't have enough space for it. I'd love to, I'd love to go and get like an old Pac-Man 
arcade cabinet and gut it and then put a main thing in it. But what I ended up doing was I bought an old Xbox off somebody on on Craigslist, and uh, I ended up having them, or I had the hard drive sort of uh, hacked a bit, and I put a main emulator on the Xbox, and then somehow accidentally walked out the door and found a USB stick with 10,000 ROMs on it. I don't know where that came from, but it ended up somehow making its way onto that Xbox, and lo and behold, I've got this amazing you know, selection of every game ever made. I don't know how it happened. But anyway, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I can suggest that, you know, do it and you won't regret it. And I'm still trying to get past some level in Donkey Kong Country that I never got as a kid, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> It's a yeah. lot of fun. We, we we occasionally go to to arcades still. Um, they're still out there, but the games are all you know huge forty two inch screens with uh three D graphics and and immersive experience. You know, you're sitting in a cockpit or driving or whatever. I don't know how kids will respond today to you know a circle eating dots and chasing you know uh, semicircles. Um, I I don't I don't know. I've never tried that experiment. But, you know, Pac-Man was fun for me. Uh, maybe it would be fun for modern kids. Well, there's a big 8-bit, you know, resurgence going on. Right. But but that's, you know, what do you do? They had so little amount of memory, so little amount of resource, and yet they pulled off some of the most amazingly addictive games um, because they knew how to make games. Right. And it wasn't all about... Hollywood production and CGI and 3D graphics and everything. I mean, that stuff's fun too, but man, just like, well, there are these simple little Space Invader games. I mean, that can really get addictive. Yeah, Rick in the chat room says his 17-year-old loves Galaga. That's just because he's human. I mean, who doesn't love Galaga? <laughs> oh, I love Galaga. <laughs> Loved me some Galaga. Yeah. yeah um, in the, one of the things that I did... Uh, recently since we last spoke is uh i've i got all the uh parts in from china and i com- have not completely but almost completely rebuilt my old uh foosball table um new bushings and and new bars and 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 it's all smooth as as, as snot on a doorknob now and um it's just uh it's really uh a great experience and so i could certainly see a uh an arcade cabinet sitting in the corner next to it um you you may have gotten me thinking i can say <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I'm working on right now, and maybe you audience have some experience with this, is I want to go, um, you know, my man cave is a basement. It's partially finished out. The The ceiling is just raw joists. Um, and right now there's just two like four foot shop lights, fluorescent lights hanging in there. And I want to do something about lighting. Um, and so I, my thought was string, there's there's like 15 joists across the, the room. And I, I thought my thought was string a string of LED lights on every joist um, and then have them all in a central controller so that like when I, when I want to watch a movie, I can dim just the things in front of the screen and have ambient lighting everywhere else. When I want to go full on media, I could bring everything down and have like a colored runway lights around it. And when I want to like play poker or when we're playing foosball, I could bring up extra lighting in those areas. Um, the, that was the, the plan, the um, experience so far has been less than stellar. Um, I'm finding I'm going to need roughly 73,000 LEDs to get the kind of lighting that two um, four-foot bar, four bar lights uh, produce. 
Um, and I just want, if anybody out there has had any experience with that, let us know. Uh, send me an email, mark at elementopi.com. I'd be interested. What, one of the things that, I, that I've been reading about that I want to try is is robbing an old 500-watt uh, uh, power supply from a PC, because I literally have those laying around, and using those to pr- power the 12-volt DC uh, and, and stringing out that all back in the closet so I don't have to have multiple lights, and I can run them all to a single controller and, and control them that way. Uh, but that's that's my current project uh, that I want to figure out. But before I do that, I need to, I want to paint the raw wood black, um, just to, you know, kind of make it disappear. Um, which would have been a great thing to do before I moved in. So next time, before I move into this house, I'll be sure to paint (laughs) the ceiling because at this point, I I think I pretty much have to move out to do that. I don't know if you know a good way to paint around furniture on a ceiling. Uh, I've heard those Wagner power uh, sprayers might be a reasonable way to go. You don't want to do like an auto paint sprayer because there's too much overspray. Uh, anybody out there who's a carpenter, let me know. Um, you know, I'm not above um, just using a, a brush. <laughs> It'd take forever because you got to go around each end of the joist and through. So every linear foot is really three linear feet uh, when you're going up and down both sides of the joist. But anyway, that's the, the man cave project I've got going right now. You know, Mark, they also make these LED lighting strips. Um, when I re- redid the lighting in our in my uh, our kitchen, I don't remember if that was this year or last year. I um I looked into those and I was going to buy some, but it turns out that what I bought was already enough of overkill. Um, but they make these strips and you know different lengths at whatever that you can you can buy. So well, that's what I w- I just bought one pair off of elementopi.com slash Amazon. It's an RGBW, so uh, an RGB uh led next to a white led so you get the the brightness and what i found is in this case anyway uh, uh five meters roughly 17 feet of leds is about the same amount of light as a 40 watt incandescent bulb okay this is something totally different okay. this is like at a home depot or lowe's that it's a different size strips like one foot up to like five feet of they're just white LEDs. is it dimmable do you know they they not all of them were some of them were. Yeah, Miles, you're the you're the guy. Have you, go ahead, Miles. I've got one of those over my workbench in the garage. One of those LED light strips. They're great. They're really bright. Um, but yeah, I didn't get one that was dimmable. Mine's just static. So maybe that's what I do for everyday lighting, and then I just run a few strings for the special effect lighting. Um, and that's certainly a way to go. You know, put some. You know what's what's caused me some issues with lighting has always been trying to get the. You know, with with old incandescent lights, you knew what a 40-watt bulb was, you knew what a 60-watt bulb was, you knew what a 75-watt bulb was. And it was very easy in a home, particularly if it was built maybe 20 years ago, to know that, okay, that light went out, so I'm going to replace it with like incandescent bulb. And then when uh, all the various different forms of lighting has come out to replace incandescent, it's very hard to match uh, output compared to what it used to be. And I've had a big problem with um, getting my head around LED equivalents because it's one thing to say this 8-watt LED is equivalent to a 40 or a 60-watt bulb, but then you've got like warm version, daylight version, and there's all these – and I can't can't seem to work it out. Um, And unfortunately, every time you go and buy one of these $10 bulbs, it's – you're wrong, and then you've got to get another $10 bulb to try to counter it, and it's just a nightmare in the end. And 
I don't know. I have not got that down right. If anybody has a suggestion, I'm all ears. I can help you a little bit with that because what in front of me right now is uh, uh, four LED uh, lights, actually two fluorescent and two LED um, for camera. And so you want as natural a lighting as possible. So there's two numbers to look at. There's the CR, which is the color response rating, and you want that to be for normal, like considered uh, white light, sunlight, you want that to be as close to 100 as possible. Um, anything you could afford is probably going to be 80 to 83, 84. Uh, and that's going to be a white light. Anything below that, um, y- you start getting uh, you know, into the oranges and yellows. Uh, and then there's the, the, other, the number that you see more often than the CR rating is the, the color, uh, the frequency specter, like 4,500K or 5,500K. So 5,000K is considered basically white light. You go above that 7,000, 7,500, you're into the blue range. And you go below that uh, 4,000, 3,500, you're into the yellow and then eventually the red. So what you want to look for, the two numbers you want to look for is uh, 4,500 to 5,000K color rating uh, or a CR of 82 or higher. That'll help a lot. Okay. Thank you. I'll I'll give that a shot. That's going to be good. That people will throw in uh, phrases like warm white or soft light, or it, it, that's just marketing garbage. What you want is those two numbers. You want as close to five thousand as you can get uh, for you know for reading, for bright light, for white light. Um, if you're you know if you want a subtle, subdued light, you know in the living room just to have a conversation over, then the warmer three thousand thirty five hundred is fine. Um, but the blue stuff, you know, above five fifty five hundred, you just don't that nobody finds that pleasant unless you're in, you know, a, a Walmart warehouse where they have those big bulbs overhead, the, the, you know, have a blue tinge to them. Those are in the seven thousand seventy five hundred range. Uh, and it's just because it's, you know, the, the HED, the high intensity discharge HID uh, headlights uh, that you see in the cars um, that gave people migraines. Uh, were the high the blue thing. So the the two numbers you want to look for the CR rating is the most accurate, but also the hardest to find. Uh, between eighty two to eighty five is about right. Uh, ninety nine if you can get it, but those are studio grade lights. And you're just not going to find that. Um, and then the the uh, five thousand to fifty five hundred K color temperature. Oh, I'm off to Home Depot then. <laughs> and I don't remember what the K is. I think it's the temperature of tungsten. Like 5,500 Kelvin, tungsten heated to 5,500 Kelvin produces that range of light. I I read that somewhere. I think that's close to what it is. Somebody right now is yelling at their podcaster for calling me an idiot. But uh, anyway, there you go. I was able to help, I hope. Yes, indeed. Um, So this has been an hour, (laughs) 15 minutes or so of not much of anything. Um, So I just, uh, let's do... Let's do two stories. I want to do this one because it fits right in with the whole tech-centric show that we've been doing. How about a 60-terabyte SSD? This is unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, last year, Samsung came out with what their 16-terabyte SSD, and I, I, that blew me away. I thought, this is crazy. Um, okay, so eventually that did hit the market, and it has a price point of $10,000. And apparently, apparent the, that price has not dropped yet. I checked again today, and I think CDRW have them for ten k. So that's uh, not going to happen. 
<laughs> so I thought, well, then I then I get this thing. A buddy of mine sends me this story about sixty terabyte storage. I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding! But no, it's a thing. It's real, and uh, you know, it's just like a regular SSD. Um, it works on a SATA or a SAS interface. Uh, Forty thousand dollars. And it's not out yet, but that's its expected retail price when it hits the hits the inventory next year. But six, and here's the other thing they did too. Um, Seagate at the same time uh, released something. Actually, this I would like to get, but I don't think I can afford it. Um, in laptops, I just got a uh, Dell XPS 15 last year, late last year. Beautiful laptop, by the way. Absolutely beautiful, lightweight laptop. But uh, it's got a... It's an NVMe uh, drive in it. The uh, PCI Express SSD drives, I guess they call them. Anyway, it's got one of those in it, and uh, just as it happens, the um, it, the problem was that the maximum capacity I could get at the time was, I think, five hundred and twelve gigabyte. Then um, I knew that there were larger versions of this available. There are some of the Macintosh. Uh, Sellers had them up to a terabyte, uh, but they're never really affordable, and um, you probably end up paying three hundred bucks for five hundred gigs. I wanted more. You know, who doesn't want more storage, right? It's like closet space. Going to fill it up with something. So I wanted more, couldn't get it. So I've been sitting, you know, pining for more ever since. And then a, a part of the story is I find out Seagate have also got an eight terabyte NVMe. SSD for my laptop. I'm like, I'm there. How much is it? They haven't given a price yet. If this thing comes out, though, I'm all over it if I can afford it. You know, it it won't be long. Um, five, six years, the uh, that 60 terabyte thing will be in, in the new iPhone. Um, you know, it, it's, that's just how fast this stuff moves. It does change the dynamic, though, on the economics of storage particularly like cloud storage um you know the obvious market for this is going to be the drop boxes and the right. you know the big storage people because uh, it's low power consumption which is a big thing when you serve when you've got servers in colos and and racks where they're charging you by the amp um but it's non-volatile it's, it's resistant to to temperature extremes it's resistant to magnetic in interference it's a much more yeah. solid way to do it totally and small i mean you can pack 10 of these into a, I don't know, maybe eight of these into a one U enclosure. It's crazy. But you've got to back it up. Right. I mean, can you imagine what sort of backup? The, the first place you should put these is not in your production servers, on your backup systems. But, um, yeah, I guess for every one that you buy, you've got to buy one to back it up as well. So they're, they're going to make a lot of money on this. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's one of those things, economies of scale. At, at some point, um, storage becomes free. You know, Google is sort of at that point now. They don't replace drives. They replace servers or maybe even, you know, it might be easier just to burn down a data center at this point and just build a new one. Um, and you know, when you're at that point, when you have trillions of terabytes of data that, that Google must have, I mean, I've never seen any numbers on that. Um, these sort of things make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's $40,000 or whatever. But at that point, when you can spend $45,000 on a drive and in the process shut down a million dollar data center by you know spending a couple million dollars worth of drives that's worthwhile you know and then 
when Google and and Amazon for their S3 storage, when they start buying these things by the ten thousands, the price will go down, and then we'll be able to put them in our iPhones. I say iPhone because uh, Android still has trouble with SSDs, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then Seth, pick one of these that just the story we have to do. Um, I think it's pretty neat, but let's talk about Sweden wants to try to save the world. All right. I just, I came across this story and I thought, Hey, you know, this is, this is an interesting take on the problem that we have addressed on the show many times about how we've become a disposable society and it's easier and cheaper to just throw something out rather than take it somewhere and get it fixed. And so Sweden has realized that, you know, this is not something that's good for long-term viability. So what they are doing is they are, they're addressing this problem by having, have, have, Halving. How do you say that? Halving. (laughs) Basically cutting the tax paid on repairable items by half and increasing the taxes on unrepairable items. So rather than fall over that word again. So I just thought it was kind of an interesting way to make things. I don't know. Again, I don't know if you can make it repairable. Because, you know, a lot, so many things that used to, it used to take a whole cabinet full of electronics to duplicate what's on something the size of a postage stamp. And you really can't repair that. But, you know, a lot of other times there's so many things that could be repairable that it's just, oh, let me throw that away and buy another one. And it's cheaper now anyway. So by taxing things that are not repairable more heavily than things that are repairable. And again, I don't think this is a long-term thing, but an interim measure until we get to the need. And you could already say we're there where you don't need to upgrade. You just need to replace what you have. And that's probably fine for 98% of the population. But until we get to that, you know, modular society um, and where tech doesn't keep growing leaps and bounds, then maybe something like this is a good interim step. Yeah. And, and let's, you know, let's talk about the fact that, uh, you know, um, they're, they're going for the manufacturers here, uh, not the consumers. I find that interesting. Can Make your product where it can be repaired. Uh, but how does that go to think like in the U.S.? I don't know what it's like in Sweden, but in the U.S., it's cheaper to buy a new inkjet printer than it is to buy ink for your inkjet printer. That's not a repairability issue. That's a sustainability issue. Um, and I've done that more than once. I've gone to Walmart and said, toner or ink is $65 or I can get a new printer for 35 with ink in it. But how much of that is the cost versus that that's where the industry has chosen to make their money is on the consumable. I would argue that technically it's probably not cheaper. It's just the industry would rather gouge you, um, you know, by getting a consumable rather than the purchase thing of the printer. Well, yeah, that's the. Uh, I think Epson is the only company I can think of that is doing better than that right now. And that's the Epson EcoTank, where you pay a real price for the printer. It's like four hundred dollars for the printer, and then two years worth of ink cost you know seventy five eighty dollars. So you 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 shuck out, call it five hundred dollars, and you don't need to purchase anything else for two years. Um, right. And then a refill again is now you know a, a third of that. They're, as far as I know, the, the only company doing it, and I don't know why. I don't know what the benefit is for Epson to do that. Is it just a, you know, trying to get goodwill thing? I, you know, I don't know. Maybe, um, 
you know, maybe they have an internal, um, golly, words are failing me today. Not that this any different from other days, but maybe they have an internal culture where they value, you know, environmental sustainability and realizing, you know, it's better for the environment if we produce more ink and less printers that end up in landfills. So, you know, maybe that's it. Miles, well, what are there's your also, well, there's also other, um, it's a really interesting topic because it's something that I've been dealing with recently as well. I, I like to rag on Tesla owners. Sorry, Tesla owners out there, but you know, you're, you're, you've got a big kick me sign on your back. I'm sorry, but okay. I'll, I'll give you something good here. Um, in the last 15 years that I've had to buy cars, which have been from major manufacturers, uh, some overseas, some American, what I've found consistently is that the car manufacturers appear to be able to want to sell you a vehicle that has a five to six year shelf life. They've made the technology inside that vehicle so complicated and and set up what almost looks like a conspiracy of, of cartels that stops the average corner shop motor mechanic from being able to afford the repair software and the repair equipment and the interface stuff in order to fix the XYZ brand car to the point where that person cannot afford to participate as an independent mechanic, forcing you to go back to the dealership as your basis of service. The dealership want to sell you a new car. So what they do is they create a situation where you have a shelf life of like five, six years, then your car hits a certain mileage limit, your warranty's gone, you're now going to have natural failure, which you wonder how much of that has been induced by the manufacturer you go back to the dealership they want to sell you a new car you're looking at thousands of dollars of repair costs versus this really nice structured payment plan that will go on for the next 10 years of your life that you'll never pay off and and so on it's it's horrible the whole thing just makes me it just makes me cringe then along comes tesla and i thought at the time this is an overpriced experiment um you know yeah i've I've been in them before. I've driven them before. They're a great car. They're a great experience, but they've got one thing in their failure, in their favor. They don't have the moving parts that go bad that forces your car to die five years later. Now, it might be that your battery life is, is got a limit on it, but if the technology of the battery continues to evolve and the battery life continues to get longer and longer, we're going to change the dynamic of motor vehicles from the point where you've got a car that you have for five, six years, and then you go and get another one, or you go and get a loan for another one, or you're forced into leasing and you know you never actually get on top of anything, to the point where you buy yourself a car that lasts you 10 or 15 years. That's a totally different economic dynamic for us. But it goes to the whole model that Sweden's talking about here. They want to force manufacturers to be more repairable. Why not force manufacturers to not try and sell you something that needs to be replaced five years later? And if they can get that under control, I'm on board with that. And maybe then I'll put a big kick me sign on my back and drive a Tesla. I don't know. Well, let's uh, deviate from from that line of thinking for just a minute because I want to I want to tackle the concept of taxation as behavior modification. Um, I mean, it's a common tactic. It's used all over the world, uh, but it's. It's bizarre to me, and the fact is it, it almost never works. You know, for example, uh, uh, cigarette taxes are, in, in New York City, for example, 
four times the cost of the actual cigarette. You pay, you pay for the cigarette, and then you pay four more times in taxes. And that's a sin tax. And the idea there is that if you have to pay more for cigarettes, you won't smoke cigarettes. Well, the reality now is that New York depends on cigarette taxes, and if people quit smoking, there's going to be a big hit to their budget. Um, so it's it's a I, I think it's a self defeating cycle when you try to use taxation as behavior modification. Um, and yeah, we may agree that uh, repairing is better than re- uh, replacing, but you know we could just as easily look at recycling or downcycling. Almost everything is downcycled; very little is recycled. Um, and you know, give consumers uh, tax incentives or tax breaks or uh, just flat out cash. You know, the government could probably use that money in a in a different way to to buy recyclable goods and run their own government funded recycling centers. Uh, and then you're not using taxation as the big ban hammer to to modify behavior. Um, it's a thing that is commonly done, and the more socialistic the the economy, the more commonly it's done. But it's done, you know, pretty much all over the place. And I just, I don't think it works ever. Uh, I don't, at least I don't think it works well. Um, But, and also I think it's disingenuous. We say that we're doing the taxation for this reason, but really we're looking at a way, because we know Apple is not going to make their parts repairable. That's contrary to Apple's businesses. So really all we're doing is just increasing our tax income. That's all we're doing. And we're putting a smiley face on it and calling it, uh, some sort of green initiative. Seth, what are your thoughts on that as a fellow uh, tinfoil visor wearer? No, there is uh, there is a lot of truth into what you say. And, you know, like I say, I don't think that long-term this is, but something has to be done to address the issue of the landfill culture that um, greed has sparked in most of the Western world. Um, and so... Again, I don't think that that this article that I, we got from OS News is the answer, but the fact that is it, it is at least a step in that direction is a good thing. But your point of it's just another way to increase taxes, hey, that's good. But at the same token, you know, if I one of for me, I understand that the Apple snobs they don't care; they'll pay fifteen times as much for their beloved trinkets. Um, but for somebody like me who says I can buy these two things, and this one ends ends up being half the price because of taxes, and then it's something that can be fixed, whether I choose to fix it myself or take it to somebody else, that is something that I like. So it wouldn't that this story would not change my behavior. This initiative would reward my behavior. And so, you know, from that sense, it wouldn't get more revenue out of me, but something has to be done. And unfortunately, you know, the government is all about changing people's behavior through whether it be taxes or laws or anything else like that. So in a lot of ways, a tax is more effective than a law. So, but from the libertarian side of me cringes, but the social conscious side of me welcomes this as an opening salvo. Miles, well, I you know I, the one thing I can I always get um, you remember those guys who used to have the corner store PC computer repair shops, right? They used to be everywhere. Um, well, they're not there anymore because everything became more of an appliance, and it's now cheaper to throw out the. XYZ brand computer or phone or tablet or whatever than it is to try to repair it. Um, so I understand technology is creating this problem as much as it's solving problems. 
But what I want to see is um, a way that we can bring back that aftermarket repair service business in so many different, whether it's appliances, whether it's, it's technology, it's computers, it's phones, it's motor vehicles, it's whatever. And if you create more jobs in that market, they pay tax. So you get your tax eventually, but at the same time, you pull a couple of people who are sitting around watching Maury Povich all day on TV, and you give them the full-time job again. So I'm all for uh, supporting aftermarket uh, repair centers, but the, I don't know, the double-edged sword of this is I don't want to see that go at the expense of natural technological evolution where we invent better, more rugged, cheaper, and you know more reliable things. Well, let's uh, let's take it out of you know. I'm sorry. Let's take it out of the realm of the the PCs, right? Uh, um, and I, I, one of my friends, actually, uh, he, he's the father of of one of my friends, uh, for years ran a TV repair shop, and now he's a contract uh, concrete contractor because nobody repairs PCs anymore or TVs anymore. Um, you know, he used to go and service uh, in home service. Remember that. Uh, in home service, the big uh, Curtis Mathis 36 inch console television, and that required special skill because if you touch the wrong thing, the tube electrocutes you. Um, and he could get stuff uh, faster than anybody else. It usually only took him four or five days to get it to, from his suppliers. Um, you know, and we're t- these things sound ridiculous now. Uh, now, if you're uh, th- first thing, 36 inches of ridiculously small television. Uh, but now if your TV, um, even, you know, even if it doesn't have any problems, it's just black Friday and you want another one, you chuck that thing. You, you, I mean, the very best you do is put it on Craigslist. Um, maybe you send it to a recycler, but most likely you're going to throw it out in the trash. Um, and you're going to buy another one. And so, you know, these other things, this is not an issue of, is it repairable? Um, this is a thing that, for all intents and purposes, outlived its usefulness. The the societal demands for television have changed faster than the technology has changed. So, you know, I, I've alluded to it before. Uh, just 30 feet away from me in my bedroom is a 32-inch Polaroid flat-screen television that I paid almost three grand for uh, back in the day. It works as well today as it did 14 or so years ago when I bought it. Um and it's, you know, the color re- repro- uh, reproduction is not as good as a television could get today. It's only uh, uh, 1080i or 720p. It doesn't do uh, 1080p. It, it can't do the 120 uh, cycle refresh rate. All these things that have come along better. If I were one of those people that needed the latest and the greatest, I would have chucked this thing in the trash years ago. Not because it needed to be broken, not because it needed repair, not because it was unrepairable, but because technology has moved on. And that's where we are with everything else now. Um, we, we have become a global society of, of disposable ethics. It's not about the, the repair of, of something or the repairability of something. It's the fact that we want more because more is available. Um, you know, and one of my, uh, friends sells cars for a living and I joke with him that his entire livelihood depends on people making bad decisions. Um, nobody needs a new car. Nobody needs a new car. You, you just don't. You might need another car if yours gets trashed or finally falls apart. Nobody needs a new car. Nobody needs a $36,000 anything. Nobody needs a $90,000 anything. You just don't need it. So 100% of his business is uh, capitalizing on people making bad decisions. 
and and signing 72 months uh, leases uh, or uh, loans for something they didn't need to begin with. Um, so this is not a new thing. This is not, you know, Sweden, come save us by, with tax breaks. This is a, a society problem. This is a human problem, not a technology problem, as I see it. We don't teach kids how to solder. <laughs> that's, that's uh, I don't know, maybe where I come from, that's how we grew up. All of my, my friends and I, we were into CB radios when we were kids, and we pulled them apart, and we worked out what transistors were, and we learned how to solder, and we learned how to put things together. And that became, for me, a career in technology. So I had an on-ramp from, from that. But today, you know, I, God, I sound, I sound so much like a, a, a naysayer, but I put my kid in college. She, I'm going to spend a hundred and something thousand dollars at a state college for her for room and board for four years to come out with a degree. And at the end of the day, there's nothing, there's no job there for her. So if she was funding that with some sort of a loan at, whatever interest rate, there's no way she could ever pay that back and she can't discharge it. Thankfully, I'm, I, I saw this coming, so I saved up my pennies. But not everybody got that lucky. But what I'm worried about is that if we've got a situation where the manufacturers are creating disposable tech, that they invent something, you use it, you throw it away, you get the new iPhone X, 7, 8, 9, 10, etc., and there's nothing in there that's repairable, and the only career opportunity you've got outside of working for the manufacturer is to work in the genius bar where, let's face it, they ain't geniuses, people. Um, if you go in, and that's your career path and yet you're still expected to go and get a college degree and come out and the support, the cost of financing of hundreds of thousands of dollars for that, we're all doomed. So I don't know where the reality check does, but I do see Sweden's position on this as being a good step in the right direction but I don't necessarily think that government is actually the answer. Seth, any thoughts? Uh, no. Um, you know, unfortunately, like every other issue in the world, there isn't an easy answer because if people could learn to be content with what they have, this would go a long way to eliminating uh, the problems. But the the thing is, you know, it's the same thing we get back into. It's like when when I grew up and went off to college, I went on a mission trip with Habitat for Humanity. And, you know, and they ask, who knows how to build a house? And nobody raised their hands. But then everything he asked, does somebody know how to do this? I was like, I know how to do that. I know how to do that. I know how to do that. The way I grew up, I realized, I didn't realize it, but my dad taught me how to build a house. And so I was like, you know, they could put me somewhere and not supervise. And Nail who you don't we don't need a lot of houses unless there's like a hurricane or a fire or an earthquake that comes through and destroys them all. And it's the same way with technology. I used to have lots of spending money in my pocket because I could count on a few thousand dollars a year repairing somebody's computer. You know, Windows XP was a boon for me. Um, but then you know the OS has got better, the hardware got better, and then. I'm not going to charge somebody $200 because of how long it took me to go in and troubleshoot and they didn't have their data backed up so I couldn't blow away the OS and I had to fix these problems one at a time when you can buy a brand new computer for that. So it killed, you know, now I only make a couple of hundred dollars a year doing that because it's, it's not worth it for me because I'll just throw this one away and buy another one. And then they're going to have the same thing happen to that because they didn't learn the first time. They just replaced it because it was cheaper than fixing it. So 
again, we all agree long term, this is not the way to fix anything. But I think because technology is still growing leaps and bounds, it, it's going to get to a point where a hundred percent of the people don't need to upgrade. And, you know, until we get to that point, something like this is an interim step that can't be any worse than no interim steps. All right. This, this is leading my mind down several paths and I don't, uh, we're, well, we're in 30 minutes in already. So I, uh, but what I want I want to make a, maybe, uh, next week we'll talk about this. This made me think of, um, you know, in a similar vein, how do you debug a program when there's no code? Um, and in the rate, the way that we're going with AI, we're, we're turning AI loose, um, and it's writing its own code. Um, I, I saw what made me think of this, uh, in this terms of this conversation, I was watching some documentary on Netflix cause I'm a geek and I do that. And it was the guys who invented the technology that became Microsoft connect. Um, and the, this tracking thing, um, had to, you know, figure out the, the arm and the, and you know, if your right arm, your left arm, your head, your, your, your torso, and, you've, and had to track whole body tracking using a camera. Um, and they worked at this. Uh, trying to figure out how to do that and and fed it models of different size people and and you know they had to make this thing work with you know a two year old or a ninety two year old a fat guy or a thin guy and we all look very different and in the end what they ended up doing was let the machine write its own code they just fed it different people doing different things and you know Pandora style thumbs up when it got it right and thumbs down when it didn't uh, and the guy was saying there's no code to write there's no code to debug when this thing breaks the only thing we can do is shut it down and start over, you know, pull it from a backup and start over again. Um, it's like an evolutionary path. You know, if the comet didn't hit the dinosaurs, we might all be reptilian. Um, and there's no way, there's no reset on that. There's no debugging that. So I think it would be interesting to have this conversation about how this uh, uh, applies to not only code, but also hardware. Cause we're in that thing now where it's not too long before we're going to have machines building machines. Um, and they're going to be doing, uh, you know, they're going to be doing design work. They're going to be doing these things uh, that we, you know, we can't repair them because we don't know how they were built in the first place. The machine did it. I mean, that's going to, that may be a generation away, but I see no reason to think that we won't move in that direction, that that same AI will move into hardware and we'll have, you know, uh, instead of Johnny Ive, we'll have Johnny AI designing the new iPhone uh, using, you know, using uh, thumbs up and thumbs down. You know, and Rick is saying, hello, Skynet. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of that thing. Um, you know, one day the computers will decide that the, the, the flaw in this ointment, the thing that causes all the problems is the humans. We'll just get rid of those. Um, but you know, I don't think we can stop the path we're on. The, the only way to advance is to take humans out of the design and construction phase. So that that's something I want to talk about later. I'm just I'm just teasing it right now, but it all ties into the fact that you know the I'm looking at two uh, computer monitors in front of me. I don't know how they work. I mean, I have a, a high level understanding of their LCDs and the crystals oriented based on a chart. I don't know how they work. I could have taken apart an old CRT tube uh, because I did. You know, uh, Rick, right. Rick in the chat room said the same thing. I um, you know I didn't know that if you touch the wrong thing, it would kill you. I just knew this TV didn't work. I couldn't make it worse. Let me break it open and see what happens. Um, and like you, Seth, I can do uh, all sorts of stuff. You know, I, I learned to be a pretty good shade tree mechanic by buying a crappy truck. Um, you know, <laughs> it was I didn't go to school. I had to get to school. And so the only way to do that was to put the new carburetor on my truck. And so I had to figure that out. And we, we live in a world where the figure it outness is so distant 
that you know you can't work on this android phone it's not possible because the the machines that did it are soldering at the microscopic level soldering if you're from um australia um and so it's it's not only not human serviceable it's not human creatable uh and so we're just going to keep going down that path until the humans become you know the consumers only (laughs) well i'm not going to go all dystopian but i am going to say that humans will be consumers only that's the path i see us on uh and we will be creating art and music and you know ideas i i don't see um it's going to be a long time before the machines are better than that than we are they they may, they'll probably get there at some point um, have you seen the ideas we're creating in american politics well, yeah i don't I, know if it'll take that i wasn't going to go there um <laughs> yeah i think any i think any ai software could produce better presidential candidates than we have this year uh, just a, enough yep. thumbs up and thumbs down would do that <laughs> right um so anyway, that's that's uh, maybe not next week, but w- when I can get some thoughts together. Oh, who am I kidding? I don't do anything work, uh, work ahead of time. Sure, that's what we'll do next week. Um, um, but, you know, is, is as Rick is saying, are we going to, you know, blow ourselves up before we get that far? I don't know. Maybe maybe that's the humanity's only option. And maybe we've done it before, you know. Um, one of the, uh, at the museum we went to, there was an Archimedes exhibit and it was talking about all the cool stuff Archimedes did. And, and they were talking about uh, some of the things that we think are the techniques that were used uh, to build the pyramids. Uh, you know, a weighted um, a bucket with rocks on one side of the pyramid and the thing you wanted to move up on the other. And you keep loading rocks because you have an infant and not a slave labor until the bucket is heavy enough to pull the rock up the thing. And that looks all logical and certainly in a diorama, it makes sense, but we have no freaking clue how they built the pyramids. We don't have, we don't have a clue. Um, and so, you know, maybe some, uh, primeval, uh, regeneration of humanity will be looking at my Moto X pure and saying, we think maybe that they rubbed the glass together to polish it. Uh, <laughs> we won't have any idea. You know, there was a, um, I think it was in high school English class. It was a, uh, an illustrator had did this, um, little story and it was like, you know, there was a war that was so terrible that the only thing that survived was one man, one woman, and one flower. And then it was like, you know, these, um, the man, and the woman got together and then they did this and then they did that. And then, you know, then came the politicians and then came the governments and then came the liberators and then came the countries and then the arms. And then the war was so terrible that the only thing that survived was one man, one woman, and one flower. Right. And so the first pain and the last pain of the story were the exact same. And so, you know, the, the thought behind that was how many times had that um, been perpetuated? Uh, it was, you know, I, was, I remember it over, it was over half my life ago. So imagery sticks with you. Not that that means anything or no. is in any way related, but... Well, this this whole show has been about unrelated things. So tell us an unrelated thing that happened this week in history. Okay. This week in history, the day the show will be released, uh, October the 5th, 1986, supercomputer pioneer Cray dies as a result of an automobile accident. 
The father of the supercomputer, Seymour Cray, died due to injuries sustained in a car accident two weeks earlier. Cray was born September 28, 1925, in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Uh, Cray worked among computer pioneers after graduating from the University of Minnesota in 1951 with bachelor's and master's degrees. With several others, he founded Control Data Corporation, where he built the CDC 1604 and CDC 6600. Uh, the latter was the most powerful computer of its time, three times more powerful than IBM's stretch. Cray founded his own company, Cray Research, and in 1972, and built supercomputers in a cylindrical design that aimed to cut down the length of internal wiring. Crays were used primarily for scientific research and computer graphics. So this day in computer history, we lost a supercomputer pioneer. No telling how much more awesome supercomputers would have been today, because he was only 50 years old when he died. Yeah. Or actually, I guess that would be 40. So, sorry mm-hmm. if I, or however, those, I can't do math anymore. Sorry, 70. Those Cray computers looked awesome. I mean, they looked, they they, did. Do, you, do you ever see those photos of those big round cylinders mm-hmm. with, the, with the, like, ve- veins coming out of them? Oh, man, that was a computer. Oh, yeah. It really was. Sweetness. Yeah, uh, the history has proven time and time again that smart people die in stupid ways. Um, and you know, that's, this doesn't say he was drinking, uh, drunken and and speeding, you know, but you kind of can, can fill that in and assume that he was probably, I don't know that he was, but, um, smart people die in stupid ways. You don't know what happened. Yeah. Well, apparently Rick does know in our chat room, we have a, a bit of history right here with us. He said he knows the other person in that accident. Oh, wow. Small world after all. Wow. It's a small world after. Um, all right. So um, we will at some point get to this thing here that's been in the discussion points part of the notes for the last three weeks. Um, we'll get there one of these days. I promise. Uh, but Seth, uh, what do you have to make me look like an idiot? That's what this is. <laughs> okay. This could very well do it. This is geoguesser.com. Um, click the link in the show notes. And basically... What it is, is a website where you go to, and then it shows you a, this is a real picture, um, taking like on Google Maps, Google Earth, and you, based on this photo, you try to pick where in the world you think this is, and then it will tell you how far away you are, and then how many points <laughs> you get based on how close you are. So, I am looking at a picture of houses on a street. Um, I don't see a thing there. So, I'm going to say this is over in Europe somewhere because it doesn't look like the driver's side is on there. So, I'm just going to guess right there. And then I'm going to click make guess. And I am, dude, I'm only 136 kilometers from the correct location. I earned 4,561 points on that guess. So, um, let's see. If I can do a little math here, the circumference of the Earth um, is about 12,000 miles. Is that right? That seems a little much. Um, but I'm going to go with it because I think I remember that from my crappy uh, geography experiments. Um, so, the maximum point of, of distance you can be from any two points on the planet is about 6,000 kilometers, if my math is right. And uh, my first guess, I was 6,000 kilometers away. So, I literally could not have been any oh not not kilometers miles so uh, six thousand yeah. miles so I was only three thousand miles that, that makes me feel a little better uh, yeah 
like I say, I, I guess because the picture had a car and you could kind of see on the left-hand side and I didn't see a driver's li- or wheel. So I thought this must be in Europe somewhere. So I picked England and just picked a spot in England and I was only 85 miles away. So that's not bad for a guess based on one photo. All right. So I'm looking at here. This one, I was only 300 miles away. Um, it was in, uh, uh, looks like Texas and I was in the same state. So I feel a little better about that. Uh, cause I recognize some of the trees because <laughs> you know, we only have certain trees in Texas. Now this was, uh, wow, this is not far from where I used to live actually. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, geo guesser. So if you want to feel dumb about geography, um, Seth's got you, got you hooked up. Yeah, and you could say, I'll do better next time, and this definitely has the uh, power to lower your productivity. Uh, the nice thing is this, it's not, it's called GeoGuessr, it's not called GeoKnower, uh, right. because let's face it, we're all making this stuff up. Um, it's just a random Google Street View picture. Um, anyway. Sometimes there's clues, just depending on the picture. Right. So. Uh, okay, so this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us. I've given you several assignments uh, this week. Tell me about LED lighting. Tell me about uh, um, what was the other, the best way to paint a large room cheap um, <laughs> without ruining everything in it. Uh, tell us what you think about uh, government taxing, uh, controlling behavior through taxation. Uh, you can do all these things by going to elementop.com. Click the contact us button at the top of the page. Fill out the world's hardest captcha and uh, fill out the form, and that uh, gives priority in our in-basket. Or you can uh, you can uh, email um, geekrant at elementop.com, or you can call 559-IMOP, leave us a voicemail on our Google Voice line. We haven't had that happen in a while, and we'll play it there. But uh, we, we like to hear from you. We truly do, uh, because let's face it, we ran out of ideas a long time ago. That's a nice thing about Miles. He's kind of given us an infusion of new ideas, because uh, Seth and I, <laughs> we got nothing, and haven't for like a decade now. Uh, <laughs> I'll crash and burn soon too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we appreciate uh, you listening, and we appreciate hearing back from you. As always, um, the best thing you could do to help us out—I mean, throw money at us—that would be awesome. Uh, Patreon.com. You could do that if you want to uh, join the awesome people that support us. Uh, and you know, it would be nice if I could write these guys a check every week for showing up. I would. Pr- I would like to be able to do that. Uh, but anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, or, or you can go to elementopi.com slash Amazon, make your purchases. We, we get a little kickback of that. Um, I think I got paid this month. It was like $40. Uh, so, you know, it's, I'm not making a ton of money off of that, but it does help keep the, the server hosting and domain names, which keep going up every year. Um, uh, so we appreciate that. But anyway, uh, the, other than that, other than throwing money at us, the best thing you could do is tell other people about us. Uh, try to make it sound better than these guys talk for two hours about nothing. Um, you know, Seinfeld did that, but he only did it for half an hour. Um, so that's not new. Try to make us sound smarter than we really are. We'd appreciate that. Um, but that's it. We'll see you next week. Uh, live chat room. A couple of you guys there. Thanks for hanging out with us. We already pre- always appreciate, uh, interactions there. Uh, but that's it. I'm calling it. That ends this episode of the Geek Rant. Geek Rant.